Well, let me uh, invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 139. This will be our last Sunday in this particular uh, psalm. Psalm 139. And if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be a prayer of surrender. A prayer of surrender. In 1893, Francis Thompson tells the story of his own conversion to Christianity, and he tells that story in a poem that he entitled, The Hound of Heaven. A couple decades ago, Michael Card, uh, the musician, wrote a more accessible version of that poem, and he put it to music for one of his uh, albums. I remember listening to this song uh, many years ago when the album came out. In the song, Michael Card describes a person's futile attempt to flee from God when God has so set himself on loving that person who is fleeing from his love. The title of the song is Hound of Heaven, and it goes like this. I fled him down the nights and days. I fled him down the path of years. I heard all about the love of the one who was following me. I clung to every shallow breath, the whistling mane of every wind. I feared that once I tasted that love, I could never let go. So as those strong feet kept following, away I sped. But the love that followed overcame the fear that fled. Then I went into the world of men, to the ones who called the hound their friend. I thought in vain that would be the best place to hide. To Mother Nature's breast I flew and shouted to the sky so blue, Please hide me from this one so set on loving me. Came back the voice that sounded like the bursting sea. None will shelter you who will not shelter me. Finally, I can flee no more. I yield before your open door. The prize you sought for so long is finally yours. The dark and gloom that hounded me for so long now that I can't see. I surrender all those things you've taken from me. Came back the voice. I did not take them for your harm. I only wanted you to seek them in my arms. I think many of us here would say, yeah, that's my story too. Francis Thompson and Michael Card are not the only ones who would use this kind of terminology to speak of the conversion of the sinner to Christ. In fact, in his book, Why I Am a Christian, John Stott, who was once the pastor of All Souls Church in London, says this in the first chapter of this book. He says, Why I Am a Christian is due ultimately neither to the influence of my parents or teachers nor to my own personal decision for Christ, but to the hound of heaven. That is, it is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. If it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, 
I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. You might be interested to know that there's actually, there's a French translation of the Bible that puts a title over Psalm 139 that we have been studying. And you know what the title is? The Hound of Heaven. And for good reason, because David in this psalm describes his experience of God in a similar way to Francis Thompson, Michael Card, and John Stott. And I want us to just start off this morning by reading this psalm. Let me read it to you beginning in verse 1, and it'll set us up to study the last two verses of this psalm uh, today. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the night, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. 
This is the word of God, and may God help us to understand and receive his word this morning. We've taken three Sundays to study the first 22 verses of this psalm. David, we have seen, has tried to flee from God, but he has failed. And it's in the final two verses that we see David reaching a point of full capitulation, a place of surrender to the love of God and praying a beautiful prayer of surrender to God in the last two verses. And the way we'll frame it this morning is we'll see this prayer of surrender to God expressed in the form of four requests that David brings to God. We'll look at these four requests. And as we we look at them, I just want us all to have an open heart and to honestly be asking ourselves the question, has God brought me to a place in my spiritual journey where I am habitually uttering the gist of these same requests in my relationship with God? Four requests that David makes in his prayer of surrender to God. And the first, let's word it this way. I tried to be real creative uh, in how to word this point, And I think I came up with a really ingenious way. And that is search me and know my heart. Search me and know my heart. And just so you know where I get this point from, it's from verse 23, where David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. David clearly is no longer hiding from God. He's now actually inviting God to see him as he is. He's saying to God, go ahead, Lord, I will not resist the penetrating gaze of your all-seeing eye upon me. I will hide nothing from you. I will not ask you to turn away from me or to leave me. I will not try to put fig leaves between or anything else between you and me. You have full permission to search me through and through and see my heart. We know from uh, Proverbs chapter four, verse 23, that the heart is the wellspring of life, right? It's the control center of our being. It's the core of our being. When somebody says to you, I want you to know my heart. You know that they are wanting the deepest kind of relationship, right? In which they are fully transparent with you. What's interesting here, as we think about this, is that we all know that our hearts aren't very pretty, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the human heart is deceitful above all else, and it's desperately sick and beyond even human comprehension. Most people don't want to know even their own hearts, much less let somebody else look upon and know their hearts. Many years ago, the American evangelist D.L. Moody once said that if somebody could invent a camera that could take pictures of someone's heart, not their physical heart, but the heart as David is using the term here. And if that cameraman went around trying to make a living off of taking pictures of people's hearts, 
that cameraman would die of starvation because no one would want their heart exposed in that way. And we get that, right? Yet David, amazingly, is coming to God and he's saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. By inviting God to know his heart, David is, he's not asking merely for God to know his heart in some passively intellectual way. This is a relational term. He's inviting God to relationally know his heart. David is saying, God, I'm willing for our relationship to go here now. I don't merely want a relationship with you that deals with surface issues where I perform and whatever my performance is and rituals I engage in are enough for you. I don't want a shallow relationship with you. I want a relationship with you that goes all the way down to the issues of my heart. I want my heart to be known by you. And in wording this request, don't like, don't misunderstand David here. He's not saying, okay, God, starting now, I'm going to uncover my heart that's been blocked from your view. You've not known my heart up to this point, but I am now uncovering my heart so that you can begin to know it like you don't know it now. No, David is not saying this. He's already communicated that God knows everything about him in the first few verses of this psalm. What he's saying here is, God, I know that you already know my heart, but I want you to know that I'm okay with that. And I'm willing to let you take me with you in that. I am willing for our relationship to go here. Apparently, David has been brought to a place where he knows something about God that makes him okay with God knowing his heart. He knows that God will apparently not reject him in response to anything that he might see in David's heart. God has persuaded David that he knows the depths of David's heart and he loves him the same. And David now has no fear of God looking at his heart and then fleeing from David in terror. Nor does he fear God smiting him for something that God might see in his heart. Guys, we, none of us really knows our hearts but we know enough about our hearts to know that there's stuff in our hearts we hope no one knows about, right? Um, imagine being at a place with God where you feel safe and you feel secure and you feel confident to come before the God of heaven and say, I want a relationship with you and I'm inviting you to search me and know everything in my heart. I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm inviting that. Look at David's next request in his prayer of surrender. He says, try me and know my anxious thoughts. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Verse 23, at the end of the verse, try me, he says. Examine me and know my anxious thoughts. The word that is translated try here means to examine, 
with the intention of putting something to the test to see if it's genuine or to see if it's fake, to see if it's good or bad, or even the degree to which it is good or bad. I recently handed a cashier a $20 bill and the cashier took the bill and in front of everyone in line behind me, he took a marker and marked the bill. And then he also held it up to the light and examined it for a few seconds to see if the bill that I handed him was genuine. What was he doing? He was examining that $20 bill to determine the real truth about it. Was it genuine? Was it fake? It was not enough for this cashier to just see the number 20 written on the bill. He wanted to take a closer look and actually test the fabric of the paper and look for other indications in the paper that the bill was genuine. Was I offended that he examined my $20 bill in that way? A little bit. (laughs) No, not at all. Uh, Although when he handed me the receipt, I was tempted to take a marker and mark the receipt. (laughs) Hold it up to the light to make sure that it was genuine. But no, I'm okay with that. Uh, But the same thing is happening here. When David says to God, try me, he's inviting God to put him under examination in order to determine the real truth about him. He's saying, don't just trust the words I speak or even actions I may engage in. Examine me, put me under the light. And David is not offended at the thought of being examined by God in this way. In fact, he's asking for it. He's welcoming it. And what makes this all the more remarkable is that this is not David on his best day when he's making this request. It's one thing for us to clean up our act and get all of our ducks in a row and everything is, man, as it should be. I think today's a good day to ask the Lord to examine me. This is not David on his best day. This is David on a day when he knows there's something that God is going to discover in the examination. And that is his anxious thoughts. So David goes ahead and gets that out on the table and says to God, examine me. And know my anxious thoughts. The expression anxious thoughts here speaks of troublesome thoughts, which would include worrying thoughts, upsetting thoughts, angry thoughts, discouraging thoughts, despondent thoughts, sorrowful thoughts, fearful thoughts. You have any of those? Basically, this word speaks of any kind of thoughts that leave a person feeling unsettled or troubled. Interestingly, in Psalm 94, verse 19, David speaks of his anxious thoughts literally multiplying within him, which no doubt is David's way of speaking of what we today would call an anxiety attack. Not just one anxiety, but they're being multiplied within him. 
In Psalm 38, 18, David says, I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. Teaching us that sometimes our anxieties come about as a result of sin that's in our life. And here in Psalm 139, it could be that David is anxious and having anxious thoughts due to his external circumstances. It could be that he is anxious as a result of sins that he has committed that have unleashed complications in his life. David's anxious thoughts almost certainly have something to do with the wicked that he's just been talking about in verses 19 through 22. David has vented his thoughts about the wicked in those verses. He's upset. He's troubled by the murders that they commit and by how they speak against God and how they shed the blood of innocent people. It could be that some of David's anxiety here is over the welfare of those who are being impacted and hurt and injured by the actions of the wicked. David's anxious thoughts might even include his anxiety over being examined by God. Part of what he may be saying is this, Lord, when I tell you to search me and know my heart and examine me, a part of me welcomes that and wants that, but a part of me feels anxious about you doing that very thing. But I want you to know that even the anxieties I feel about you examining me, I lay those before you. I want you to know even the anxieties I feel about you examining me. Whatever the reasons for David's anxieties are, he's saying, essentially, Lord, I bring those anxieties before you and I don't want to carry them alone. I don't trust myself to have a right perception of my anxious thoughts. I want you to know my anxious thoughts and I'm ready for our relationship to go there. I just ask you, do, do you invite God into your anxieties? Do you invite him in your moments of anger, frustration, and anxiety and worry to examine you in those very moments and to know your anxious thoughts? Do you let your relationship with God go there? There's actually tremendous blessing that we would experience if we invite God into our anxieties the way that David is doing. I was reading a couple of years ago about a Christian songwriter, Charles Weigel, who was going through a difficult season with his family, which left him so discouraged and distraught one night that he stormed out of his house and began walking down the pier near his home. He lived just off the Gulf of Mexico. And as he tells the story, as he was walking along the pier, he was so discouraged that the thought crossed his mind to end his torment by jumping off the pier into the waters below and ending his life. He thought about it, but something stopped him from doing that. And so instead of dumping himself into the waters below, he began dumping his anxieties and his thoughts upon the Lord. And he began talking to God and 
pouring out his heart to God. The whole mess of emotions that were roiling inside of his heart. He then walked back to his house with a heart that was encouraged and in a very different place. And he sat down at his piano in his home and he started spontaneously just playing the piano and singing whatever came to his mind. And the way he tells the story, within 20 minutes time, he heard himself singing a brand new song that was coming to his lips. And the words that he was singing went like this. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something no other friend could do. All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms about me and he led me in the way I ought to go. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. What Charles Weigel did on that evening, that's what David is essentially doing in this psalm. He's speaking to God in verse 23 to God as a friend. And he's inviting God to know his heart, to know his anxious thoughts. His heart is full of troublesome anxieties and he's bearing his soul and his troubles to God and inviting God to look in and see it all. And keep in mind, you know, that this is not an easy thing for us to do, if we're honest, to give God permission to examine our anxieties is hard to do because our anxieties are one of the most revealing things about us, right? Our anxieties always reveal things that go deeper about us than the thing that we think we're anxious about. For example, you might be anxious and fearful about losing your job and you're carrying that anxiety around and expressing that and taking it out on other people, but that anxiety reveals volumes, not about your job, but about how you see God and how much you're trusting or not trusting his goodness and his promises and how much you believe his promises to provide for you and to be there for you, whether you have a job or not. I once heard someone say that if you want to know what your idols are, then look at your anxieties because you will often find your idols at the bottom of your anxieties. You see, our anxieties are revealers. And often what they reveal about us is not very pretty. Even the ways we act when we're anxious are not very pretty either. Our anxieties are among the most revealing things about us and what they reveal is often unflattering. So David is taking a huge step here and coming to God and saying, here's my anxious thoughts, the whole mess of them. Look at these two. Know these 
I put them before you for your examination. David is doing a good thing to bring his anxieties to God for God's inspection. And he's teaching us, I think, something wonderful about the true nature of true worship. You see, guys, think about it this way. When you, when you have anxious thoughts and you decide to bear those anxious thoughts and carry them alone, that's sin. That's the sin of worry. When you have anxious thoughts and you bring those anxious thoughts to God and pour them out before him, that's worship. Worship is not simply coming to God with your praise on your good days. Worship includes coming to God with your worries and inviting him into your worries. It's also worth saying here that it's, it, it's not a sin automatically to have anxieties. It's a sin to have anxieties that we don't bring to the Lord. That's why in 1 Peter 5, Peter doesn't speak to us and say, don't ever have anxieties. That's not what he says. What he does say is, hey, those anxieties you have, bring them to the Lord. Cast them upon him because he cares for you. Those anxieties are a great matter of concern to him. And part of why we give our anxieties to God and cast them upon him is not simply so that he can help bear them, but also so that he can inspect them and help us to make sense of them as well. By the way, let me, let me say this, something that I think all of us know but I don't know that we're always mindful of this. Your anxieties that you carry, they're going to come out of you one way or another. You're either going to pour them out to God or you're going to have them be pouring out of you in your attitudes and in your actions and in your words towards your spouse and your children and your coworkers and others. It's going to come out of you one way or another. So do yourself a favor and everyone in your life a favor by taking the anxieties that are in your heart and pouring them out to the God who actually is asking you to dump them on him. You have freedom to dump all of your anxieties on me, God says. Last time you probably checked, the people in your life that you love and who love you, they, they haven't quite given you that permission. Just dump all your anxieties on me anytime you want. But God's given you that permission. Pour out your heart and anxieties to God. It will be good for you and be a blessing to those in your life. As we have seen before, David is going through some kind of difficult season in his life. He's feeling anxious and upset but the great thing is that he's coming to God with the whole mess of what he's feeling in his heart, and he's inviting God into all of that. And it's, it's now that we come to verse 23 that we can kind of go back uh, through the earlier verses of the psalm, especially verses 1 through 18, and see what David has been doing all along. This whole psalm is David with an anxious and a troubled heart 
coming before God and doing deep meditation upon God and beholding God, contemplating God's loving omniscience in his life and God's overwhelming and loving involvement in his life. And the striking thing is that all of these meditations that David has engaged in, in verses 1 through 18, have not necessarily made his anxieties go away. Instead, these meditations have helped to usher David into a place where he's now inviting God into his anxieties. And that's worship. David does something else too. It's one thing to invite God to know your anxious thoughts. It's another thing to go one step further and invite him to see your sin. And that's what David does next. The third request, we find this in verse 24, is David is basically saying, see if there be sin in me. He says in verse 24, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Again, it's not like God can't see David's sin and David is now letting God see something that was previously blocked from God's view. No, David is just simply saying, God, I want you to know that I'm okay with this. I'm ready for our relationship to go here. I will not hide my sin from you any longer. I'm inviting you to actually see my sin. The Hebrew expression that is translated in the New American Standard hurtful way is literally way of pain or way of grief. David is speaking of his sin here, but he is speaking of his sin from the vantage point of the grief and the hurt and the pain that his sin causes to himself, to others, and the pain that it brings to the heart of God. David is realizing here, this is so wonderful, guys. He's realizing here that it's not just the wicked who are engaging in hurtful behaviors and sinful behaviors. He's realizing that I am too. There are hurtful ways in me. You'll be interested to know that in Genesis 6, Verse 6, we're told that God saw the wickedness of man before the flood that was great on the earth. And the text says that God was grieved in his heart by the wickedness of man. And the word translated grieved in Genesis 6, 6 is exactly the same Hebrew word that David is using here in Psalm 139. So yes, the sin of the wicked causes grief and pain to the heart of God. Yet David here is recognizing that he has sin in his own life that causes pain to himself, to others, and to the heart of God. In verse 24, David is inviting God to see his sin. Adam and Eve ran in the garden after their sin and hid themselves from God because they didn't want God to see their sin. But David is literally inviting God to see his sin. Imagine, just imagine being brought to such a place spiritually 
where you're willing to come before the God of heaven who is completely holy, righteous, and sinless to open yourself up before such a God and actually invite him to see all of your sin. Sinful actions, sinful words, sinful thoughts. He says, see if there be any hurtful way in me. You can see it all, all of my sin, Lord. David must here know something about God. He must know that God is a God of mercy who accepts blood sacrifices for any sin that he would see in David. David knows that if God shows him that he has sinned, that there is provision in the law for an animal to be sacrificed so that David could have atonement. And knowing of this sacrificial provision, David knows he has nothing to fear. He knows that if God were to look upon him and look into his heart and see sin, David knows that God is not going to destroy him. He knows that God will save him deliver him from the guilt of his sin, and then help him to walk on a different path, as we'll see in just a moment. What makes what David is doing here so compelling is that David has just railed against the wicked because of their sin. In verses 19 through 22, he's being very specific in naming their sins. And David could have ended the psalm with this diatribe against the wicked Yet he doesn't end the psalm on that note. He's not just posting on his Facebook page this diatribe against the evil people in his culture. He ends the psalm on the note of him recognizing sin in himself and inviting God into that, to see that and to help him with that. David's setting a great example for us, guys. I think it's wonderful that David can talk about both the wicked in verses 19 through 22 and about his own sin, all virtually in the same breath. David indicates here that he realizes that the line between good and evil doesn't run between him and the wicked as if they are all bad and he is all good. David recognizes that there is evil in his own life and in his own heart, and work needs to be done. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was an honest and truthful writer who lived under Soviet communism. The government of the Soviet Union was beyond wicked, and they imprisoned him for the truths that he told about life under communism, if anyone had the right to finger point and spend 100% of their time pointing to the evils outside of himself at what was going on under Soviet communism, he did. Yet it was while he was in forced exile, forced into that exile by the Soviet government that Solzhenitsyn came to realize that he too was a sinner and that he needed a savior. And it was while he was in exile that he converted to Christianity 
and became a believer in Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of sins, of his own sins. And listen to what he says that he observed and learned. He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And evidently, David realizes this. He's not praying here, Lord, search the wicked and know their hearts and see if there be any hurtful way in them. That's the easy thing to do, right? David is doing the harder thing. What he's saying here is search me and know my heart and see if there be any hurtful way, any sinful way in me. Guys, imagine that our faith in Christ here at Cornerstone made us radically introspective and militant against sin in us. Imagine that our faith in Christ turned us into people who speak with the prophetic voice against the evils that plague our culture but a people who also model the virtue of humble introspection and speak as strongly against the sin in us as we do against the sin outside of us in our society today. Would to God that we would be the kind of people who speak so courageously and forthrightly about our own sin and our need for examination under the all-seeing eye of God, that the world would watch us and hear our confessions and listen to us and say to us, where do you get the courage to speak that way about your own sins? And to submit yourself to this kind of examination from God. Where do you get the courage to say to God, see if there be any sin in me and that we would have the chance to say, I'll tell you where my courage comes from. It comes from Jesus. And let me tell you about him. Before we move off this third request, let me just ask you when you're in a conflict situation with someone else in your marriage or in any other kind of relational conflict, do you do what David does? Do you just make an assumption that, well, the line that divides good and evil runs between me and this person that I'm having a conflict with? They are all wrong and I am all right. Do you assume all the wrong is on their side and that you are sinless? Or do you go into the resolution of those conflicts by asking God to show you your sin and saying to God, see if there be any sin in me that I need to repent of. What David does here is the ultimate act of surrender, but he doesn't stop there. Look at his final request. He says, lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in the everlasting way. The really great thing about God Guys, is that God doesn't just see your sin, but he has the power and the wisdom to lead you out of any sin 
and onto a new way, the everlasting way. And that's what David is asking God to do here. He's saying, God, see if there be any sin in me, but don't leave me in my sin. See if there be any hurtful way in me and then deliver me from it and lead me and guide me away from that sin onto the everlasting way. When we think of um, the, the word, the Hebrew word that is translated everlasting here, especially when we see the English word everlasting in a passage like this, we tend to think right away of something that lasts forever in the future, right? But the Hebrew word that is translated here everlasting actually also carries the idea of remote time in the past, We see this word used this way in Genesis 6, 4, when the writer speaks of men of old. And that word old is the same Hebrew word translated everlasting here in Psalm 139. The word is used in Ezra 4, 15 to speak of past or ancient days. And the Hebrew word translated past in that passage is the same word translated everlasting here. Proverbs twenty two twenty eight says, do not remove the ancient boundary. And the word translated as ancient in that proverb is the very Hebrew word that is used here in Psalm 139, verse 24. Both of these ideas of ancientness and everlastingness are implied in David's use of the term here in Psalm 139. David is saying in part, Lord, lead me in the ancient way, which is the law that was given hundreds of years ago. Lead me in the way of my forefathers, the ancient way that has stood the test of time. Don't lead me in the contemporary way or the popular way. Don't lead me in the way that this generation happens to think is correct. Lead me in the way that is not fickle, that is not unstable and not short-lived. Lead me in the way that won't come or go with the shifting winds of my present generation. Lead me in the solid way, the right way that has endured through the centuries and will continue to endure through all generations to come. Lead me in the way that is both ancient and which will prove to be everlasting. That's what he's saying. And in asking God to lead him in this way, David is admitting his helplessness. This is David admitting that he can't walk that path on his own. He needs a savior. He needs a leader. He needs a guide. If David is going to be free of his sin and walk on the right way, the everlasting way, then God is going to have to be his leader, and his guide. And this is the essence, guys, of salvation. Salvation comes to those who admit their helplessness and then call out to the Lord to do for them what they know they can't do for themselves. David is not saying here, Lord, see if there be any sin in me, and then I will get myself onto the everlasting way. He's not pulling himself up by his bootstraps and saying, I will walk the everlasting way. He's saying, Lord, you, you lead me. 
in the everlasting way. I give you control of my life, and I'm asking you to take the leadership and lead me in this way. I will not be the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. I'm asking you, Lord, to be that. David is doing the hardest thing we can imagine, right? And also the easiest thing of all. He's letting himself here be naked before God, letting God see his sin and surrendering control of his life and giving that control to God. What David is doing, we might look at it and say, whoa, this is like amazing and hard. But what David is doing here is not as hard as what we we try to do. The hardest way is to live your life hiding and covering your sin and trying to be the captain and the leader of your own life and to hold on to your sin and to keep running away from a God who's pursuing you. That's the harder way. And some of you may be walking that way right now and it's wearing you out. But David's done with that way. And he's surrendering to God who has set his love upon him. Clearly, God has set his love on David. He's pursued David and captured him with his love. And David, we see by the last two verses, is a changed man praying one of the most beautiful prayers of surrender that anyone in the Bible has prayed. Let me just close with this, guys. In these two verses, we we learn something about worship. In verses 1 through 18 of this psalm, we learn that worship, yes, entails us looking at God and beholding him and describing what we see. But in the last two verses of this psalm, we learn that worship also entails us inviting God to look at us and to see us with all of our anxieties and our sins and to allow God to tell us what he sees. And I ask you, do you have the courage to do that? Standing on this side of the cross as we are today, we have a thousand more reasons than David did, right? A thousand more reasons to feel free and confident to let God search us through and through and to tell us what he sees and to lead us onto the right path and to do that with courage. And the reason is, is because the cross of Jesus Christ shows us the truth about ourselves. It shows us that we are far worse sinners than we ever knew before. And we are far more loved than we ever dreamed possible. Let me read to you from the book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Rebecca Manley Pippert. It's a beautiful uh, passage in this book that just captures, I think, what I would hope we're all feeling at this point as we gather around the foot of the cross, being led to do that from this passage in Psalm 139. She says, at the cross, we finally see the very being we dreaded to discover At last, we find out who we are. The cross brings us out of hiding. It breaks our denial, but only in the very instant that it shows us the possibility of forgiveness. 
It shows us our corruption, but in the same breath, it tells us that the price has been paid. That means that we can face our problems squarely. That means that we can confess the darkest, most humiliating realities of our lives without despair and paralysis. No one can say, all this talk about God being loving is very touching, but if he really knew me, he would change his tune fast. The biblical message is, God says, I do know you. I know you far better than you know yourself, and you're in worse shape than you even realize. But do you think that you have done something worse than killing my son? And if I am willing to forgive you for that, then how can I not forgive you for anything else? She goes on to say, we crucified Jesus and he died. And the good news is that because of the price that God was willing to pay, we can be forgiven and reconciled back to God. But to experience and benefit from the cure, we must turn to him and quit pretending that there is nothing wrong with us when rectifying our problem cost God the life of his son. So I ask you this morning, are, are, you, are you pretending? Are you hiding? Are you running from God because you're afraid to be found out and discovered for who you really are? If you are running, from him, why don't you give up and surrender to his love? Do you realize that God sent his son into the world in pursuit of you? Do you realize that Jesus, when he was here, lived the life that you failed to live and died on the cross so that you can have forgiveness of sins and to show you how much he loved you? Do you realize that God raised him from the dead and ascended him to his right hand so that Jesus, from that position at the right hand of God, can now grant to you forgiveness and repentance if you would humble yourself and look to him as your Lord and Savior. Will you surrender to the love of Jesus today and call upon him to be your Lord and Savior? I was so touched two weeks ago um, I had a young man come up to me after the message two Sundays ago, and he told me that he saw himself in Psalm 139. He admitted that he felt both love and dread at the thought of God. But he told me that God had done a work in his heart, and rather bluntly, he said, I want to be saved. And a few minutes later, this young man was bowing before Jesus Christ and calling upon him to be his Lord and Savior sitting in this room two weeks ago. And I ask you, have you done that? Have you done that? If not, will you do that today? Will you come to God and say, Lord, I, I give up? See, salvation is not you pursuing God. It's you've been chased by God. Salvation is you being caught by God and just choosing to quit running from him. Will you say to him, I give up. I refuse to run from you any longer. I will surrender to your love and I will call upon your son to be my Lord and Savior. And I will say to you, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and be leading me in the ancient way, the everlasting way through Christ. Let's bow our heads together. The amazing thing is that you can, you can call upon the name of the Lord right now where you're seated and call upon Him to be your Lord and Savior and surrender to His love. My prayer is that there would be multiple instances where the chase ends today and the hound of heaven captures your heart. If God is working in your heart, please don't harden your heart against Him but respond to him and surrender to his love. Lord, we thank you for your amazing love uh, for us. We learn in your word that no one seeks after God. We've all gone our own way. And any of us in this room that are truly saved, we're not saved because we're any better than anybody else. We're saved because the hound of heaven pursued us and captured our hearts and we gave up running from you and instead wanted to live our lives running toward you and bowing before you and smitten and moved and put at ease by your gracious love that we are totally free and confident to just be completely known by this God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for me. This God, I can say, see my sin and lead me in the way you want me to go. Lord, may that be the desire in every heart today in this room. And for those of us that know you, we often don't live according to the ethic that we see demonstrated in this closing prayer of this psalm. May this be our prayer. May the gist of these requests be what we're uttering to you every day. That we might enter more deeply into your love and go further on the everlasting way that you are seeking to lead us on and then help us to point others to this same way. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you and we ask, Lord, that you would receive these funds and do much with every penny that is given for the glory of Jesus and the spread of your work here in this church and in this community and around the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people sin.